The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, today uh, we're in Acts again, and we're in uh, the end of chapter 4, going into chapter 5, uh, a very, uh, maybe a well-known part of the Scripture, but certainly a principle that is very important for us honesty in the body of Christ and I, the, the, the details that we'll see in this passage today will pick up on the end of that story that we've seen for the last several weeks kind of coming out of chapter 4 but then it will lead us into an example practically speaking of what uh, the principle is that we're being taught here in the scripture so if you find your place in Acts chapter 4 beginning at verse 32. While you're doing that, I want to tell you a story, a personal story uh, about dishonesty. When I was younger, I mean about, I don't remember exactly, but I'm thinking it was about 12, 13, 14 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, I have memories of family vacations. Uh, My dad... He had a friend, he and one of his friends, or maybe a couple of his friends, had, they owned a, a little place at the beach together. And so, you know, it's one thing good about my dad being in the banking business. He knew a lot of people. And so he had access sometimes to some, some places to go or to stay that, you know, here, you can just stay down here for nothing. And then, so, so that was a good thing. You know, for us, we didn't know, we didn't know all the finances behind it. We just knew, hey, we got to go to the beach. So it was good. So I remember this particular time. We'd go down and stay at this, particular, this condominium that was owned by one of my dad's friends. And uh, we'd stay for about a week and, you know, just do the things that, uh, that guys do. So I, I, was, uh, I met a couple of guys one year, one particular summer. I met a couple of guys about my age. They were brothers. And their family was also staying in the same place, the same little development. And uh, I think I said, like I saw him one day out at the pool or something. We started talking. So we kind of hung out that week. And um, just doing, you know, going to the pool, going out to the beach, and uh, just doing things that, that boys do while they're on vacation with their family. So one day we had walked, the three of us, had walked down to this little, it was a little area of, of shops, like little stores, and... And I guess back then, there was all these walking trails. So I guess back then it wasn't as big a deal for three kids to just go off walking by themselves and say, hey, we'll be back later. Okay. You know, like there wasn't as much worry about safety and all that back then. So anyway, we walked down to these shops, and I don't know what it was. I don't, maybe I just, uh, maybe I wanted these guys to think I was cool, or maybe I was, it was some insecurity in myself, and I was really uh, wanting to have, for them to have a good opinion of me. Or so, I don't know what it was. But um, as we were walking through this one store, I saw this pen that had like a little logo, like a beach scene. It had the name of the beach on it. And, and so we were just walking. I picked up the pen and put it in my pocket. And um, so later, after we had left the store... I pulled it out and showed it to them. And they're like, where'd you get that? Did you take that from the store? I said, yeah. And they just thought that was, wow, 
that was pretty bold, you know, to steal something from this store, even though it was just a little, it was a pen, it was a, you know, pen that you write with. It wasn't that big a deal. Um, and to this day, I don't remember. I may have shared that story uh, with with someone. I, I I don't remember telling another soul. So when I'm thinking about this and writing these notes down. To this day, I don't know if another human being other than those two brothers who I haven't seen in 35 years and don't even remember their names, I don't know if another human being knows I did that. The store certainly didn't know. My parents didn't know. But God knew. God knew from the moment the thought crossed my mind to do it. God knew uh, what I was about to do, and worse yet, uh, the more I think about it now from a different perspective, God knew the, the wickedness in my heart that led me to do... It seems so insignificant, right? It, it's a pen, you know? It probably back then, I mean, 35 years ago, probably wasn't even a dollar. It, it was insignificant, but... The same heart that would pick up a, a cheap item from a store and steal it is the same heart that would commit murder. It's the same heart that will sin against God in any kind of number of ways. So that evil, that wickedness that led me, that sinful nature that led me to do that, all because... I, who knows what I was thinking as a 12 or 13 year old little boy trying to be accepted by people. Maybe I thought, maybe I thought they were cooler than I was and so I didn't want to be you know, the odd man out. Who knows? But God knew the condition of my heart as I did that. So here, here's what I want to say as a preparation to this text that we're going to read together. You can never put one over on God. You might be able to fool everybody else in the room, but you can never fool God. There's, there's never a moment. Just, just try to comprehend the, the extent of this knowledge. There's never a moment that we can do anything in any circumstance for any reason that God is not fully aware of it. And what's worse than that, I'm talking about actions, what's worse than that, there's never a moment where God doesn't know your thought about doing something wrong or the thoughts or the feelings, the attitudes. The, the writer of Hebrews tells us in, in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. You know that verse? You heard that verse before? He said it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And, and here's the last part of the verse. It, it judges the thoughts and intentions of a man's heart. God knows us. It doesn't matter if we say it out loud. It doesn't matter if we just think it. it. doesn't matter if we actually do it or not. God knows it about us. That should, that should be cause for us to almost be terrified. That there's things that we have thought 
and never said. We've thought and never done. Not another soul on the planet knows it about us, but God knows everything. By the way, Hebrews 4, 13, the very next verse, says nothing in all creation is hidden from His sight, but is open and laid bare before Him to whom we must give an account. That's, to me, to me, I'm not going to tell you how to feel about that. To me, that's scary. Because just the things I know about myself, to think God knows everything, that's, it, it can be frightening. It should be, I think, frightening. At, at least enough for us to, to pause and maybe uh, reevaluate, right? So this text today is going to give us first a picture of life in the church, life in the body of Christ, and then a positive and a negative example uh, practically of what that life looks like. So I've got the text on the screen for you today, so you can follow along with me as I read, beginning in Acts 4, verse 32, and we'll go down to chapter 5, verse 11. Here's what the Bible says. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement or son of consolation, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it he laid it at the apostles feet but Peter said Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land while it remained unsold did it not remain your own and after it was sold was it not under your control why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart you have not lied to men but to God and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, there elapsed an interval of time, about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. 
kind of makes you wonder if we ought to pass the plates again. That's, that's just a joke. That's just a joke. Let's, let's pray before we get into this text. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this word. And I thank you especially uh, for the truth that it contains, the truth that it is. And so, Father, today I pray that you will, by your Spirit, speak to our hearts very clearly, help us understand the truth of your word, and then I pray you give us the strength, the grace we need to be obedient and live it out to glorify you and to uh, better ourselves as we follow Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. So this is an interesting text. It's actually very well known as far as the story, the second part, the part of chapter 5. And uh, sometimes I believe it's uh, misunderstood a little bit as far as the application of it. We're going to walk through each section here and kind of just zero in on the truth that what the Bible says and how we can use it in our lives as we seek to follow Christ, follow the Word of God. So the first section here is found in the, the ending verses of chapter 4 from verse 32 to 37. Life in the church. The words used, used here, uh, one of the first times it's referred to this way in the New Testament, is the Greek word is ekklesia. Ekklesia, if you, you ever hear the word ecclesiastical, this talks about church methods and church, uh, how the church does things. That's uh, referring to ecclesia, the noun form of that verb, which means the assembly, the, the assembly of believers. Okay? So what does life look like in that context? Well, we see here from Luke in his writing in, in Acts 4, 32 down to 37, the believers were of one heart and soul. Now that's important because they were united in devotion to the Lord and they were united in their devotion to the community of believers. And that word devotion being of one heart and soul, that's important because that determines or predicts for us how they're going to live, how they're going to behave, how they're going to act. It's based on a devotion to God and a devotion to one another, the community of believers. And how do we know that? Well, I'm glad you asked, because if you look in the text there, verse 32, what does Luke write right after he says they were of one heart and soul? Not one claimed anything belonging to him was his own. All things were common property. And so these two characteristics, uh, uh, Howard Marshall says that, that these two characteristics correspond broadly to the two pieces of the great commandment. Love of God and love of one's neighbor. Do you remember that when Jesus said, uh, what is the, great command, the greatest commandment? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Those are the, the, the great commandments. And so you see here in this early community of believers, they were living that out. They were of one heart and soul. So devoted to God, devoted to one another. The apostles, meanwhile, were testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, if you go all the way back in your minds, just remember the very beginning in Acts 1 and Acts 2, what, what was it that Jesus told those disciples before he ascended into heaven? You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and then you're going to do what? You will be my witnesses. So that's what they're doing. They're testifying to the resurrection. That's their job. They're preaching the gospel. Jesus is alive. And so everything about Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and now his ascension, they are testifying to that truth. And as a result, 
I want you to see this, this one phrase in here in verse 33. Abundant grace was upon them all. Now, that all, that's a good word. The church. Now remember, it's grown at this point, right? It started with 120 people in Acts 1, all gathered together and scared. The Holy Spirit came. Peter stood up, preached the first sermon. 3,000 people got saved. Then you move on to chapter 3 and chapter 4, and you see now the number of men, just the men, have grown to 5,000. And it said in there in the end of chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number daily, those who were being saved. So the church has grown and blossomed. And Luke reminds us that abundant grace was upon them all, not just the apostles. You know why? Why do you think God's grace was abundantly being shown to them? It's because they were doing and living. They were, they were being the church God called them to be. They were doing what God told them to do. They were devoted to Him. They were devoted to the community of believers. And I'm going to just say this one time, and I'm not going to say it again, and I don't, want, I don't mean anything by it. It's just, it's just how I see it, Okay. Do, what does it mean to be devoted to the body of Christ? What's that mean? Here, here's what I think it doesn't mean. I'll just let this sit out there with you and you can, you can uh, think of it how you want to think of it. It doesn't mean it's okay to go to Lowe's and Home Depot and the grocery store, but it's, it's too, too unsafe to go to church. I'm just going to just let that sit there and, and you can interpret it how you see fit. But these people... The reason why God's abundant grace was upon the entire body of Christ was because they were living and being God's people, exactly how He wanted them to be. They were devoted to Him. They were devoted to one another, to the community of believers. F.F. Bruce said that the apostles, as the community leaders, received the offerings that were brought. So you, you see in this... this uh, this text here that they would bring these things and lay them at the apostles' feet. There was not a needy person among them. So they would receive the offerings, but apparently they delegated the details of the distribution to other people because they themselves had to devote their time and energy to the public testimony to the risen Christ. And as they did so, the power of God shown in mighty works attended their preaching in answer to their prayer. If you remember the way they prayed in verse 30 of, of Acts chapter 4, uh, they prayed that, uh, the, that God would take note of their threats, they would grant them to speak with all confidence, that He would extend His hand to heal, and signs and wonders would take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So they prayed for that, and now it was actually happening. So they continued to enjoy the experience of God's grace and the favor of the Jerusalem populace. So they were, they were having uh, good relationships even in the community because of how they were living. It's, it was a blessing for the church to live as the church in the community around them. So it's, it's like this. The more that we're the church, the more we live and behave as Jesus calls us to, it's going to be a blessing to Wagner. It's going to be a blessing to Sally and Perry and, and all the towns around us. The, everywhere we go, as we live for Christ in the context of this church body, it blesses other people. The church is designed by God to be a blessing to other people. It's supposed to be an attractive 
assembly. Okay? It's not supposed to be a stumbling block. It's supposed to be... And that's, that's why I love this church so much. Because the things we do, the, the, the ways we serve, uh, when we're out and about, the way we uh, are witnesses and testify to the truth, and, and not just in our words, that is, that, that's an attractive thing. It's supposed to be. So that, that helps the community. That helps the reputation of God's church as a church. You, you know what? If you could ask the schools, any, any of the schools, ask them uh, about Berlin Baptist Church. Just, just pick somebody. You heard of this church? What do you think about it? I would venture to say, I would argue that 90-some percent, maybe everybody that you talk to would have a positive thing to say about this church, about these people, all of you, because of your heart, your love, your care, your service to the church, or to the school, I mean. And that, that's, how it, that's how it's designed to work. When we go out in the community, we reflect the love of Christ. And that's important. So here, here's the interesting thing about the way they preach here. When you see the, the way they testified uh, in the end here of chapter 4. The point is, they spoke in such a way, when it says they were testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. The point is, they spoke in such a way under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, their words were effective in leading other people to believing in Jesus. Now, here's the funny thing about that. As the Holy Spirit fills our words, and we speak, and we testify about Jesus, here's the interesting thing. Our words that the Holy Spirit uses can be just as effective, not in just leading people to believe in Jesus, but also in strengthening their opposition. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. These apostles, as they testified, as they preached the gospel, they were preaching, speaking in a very powerful way because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. But not everybody believed the message, right? Haven't you experienced that to be true? That when you tell somebody about Jesus, not everybody's going to like what you have to say. But here's the point. Whether they are driven to belief or whether they are uh, empowered to be even more opposed, whichever way they go, they can't just do nothing. The, the strength of the message of the gospel drives people to a decision, uh, one way or the other. They may uh, believe, and they may be more adamantly opposed, but they're going to have to choose one way or the other. And here's, here's the point of that. When the Holy Spirit empowers us to speak the gospel, people can't just be indifferent to it. You, you can't just say, oh, that's nice, and then just go on. You, you're either going to accept it or you're going to reject it, but you can't do nothing. And that's the point of what the apostles were doing. You have to... You, you, the gospel demands that you choose. Make a decision. Are you going to follow Jesus or are you going to reject Him and go your own way? You have, you have to do one or the other. And a side note, in my experience, I don't, it may not be yours, but not to choose is to choose. Does that make sense? 
If you say, no, 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 I'm, I, I don't want to worry about that right now. I'm not, I don't want to think about spiritual things. I got, I got my whole life ahead of me. I got plenty of time. What a lie. What a lie. I got plenty of time. I, I heard a guy say one time, I know when I'm going to die because my birth certificate has an expiration date on it. I don't, I don't think it works that way. I got plenty of time. I'll worry about spiritual things later. Well, in that moment, you've rejected the gospel. Not to choose is to choose against Christ. I hope that makes sense. So the apostles were testifying in a powerful way. Abundant grace was upon the entire body. And then, Luke says, at the end of chapter 4, there was not a needy person in the church because people who owned things, they would sell them, they'd bring the price of what they sold and lay it at the apostles' feet. The funds would be distributed. Whoever had a need, the needs would be met. And then at the end of chapter 4, there's a positive example. Look at 36 and 37. Joseph, it says, a, a Levite, uh, of Cyprian birth, and the apostles called him Barnabas. That's where we get that phrase, son of encouragement or son of, in, of consolation. He owned a tract of land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, that's just kind of a matter of fact. This is what he did. Okay? That not much time is spent on him other than to name him and say this is what he did because that's just what they did. Okay? It's a positive example of the, the unity, the one heart, one soul, the, the devotion to the community. We want to make sure everybody is, uh, there's not a need that's unmet. And so that's what Barnabas, Joseph, did in this case. So that's what life looked like in the church. Now, here is uh, what I've called the first 11 verses of chapter 5. Honesty is the best policy. It's not just a quaint saying. It actually is the truth. Honesty is the best policy. Howard Marshall said that it's certainly true that this story introduces us to a different world of thought from that of today. Now I want you to listen carefully to what he says. It's a different world of thought from that of today. It's a world in which sin is taken seriously and in which a person convicted of sin against the Holy Spirit might well suffer a fatal shock at the thought of having broken a taboo. He, he uses that word as a sin against God, against the Spirit. Now here's what that means. You see the scene in chapter 5, a man named Ananias, his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And I, I'm going to give some, hopefully give some clarity to to this situation uh, in terms of how, how sometimes it's explained uh, as we go through it. So they sold a piece of property, and Ananias, it says in verse 2, kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge, they brought a portion of it, laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, what I want you to see very clearly in verses 1 and 2, nothing that they've done in the first two verses, none of that is wrong. Okay? None of it's wrong. We're going to see more clearly what's wrong here in just a minute. So, the word that is used here for uh, kept back, verse 2, kept back, some of the price, it's the same word 
that is used back in Joshua chapter 7 when a man named Achan, A-C-H-A-N, Achan, remember when, they, uh, when the, the people of God, they, they, were, uh, they invaded Jericho, you know, the, the big city with the walls, walked around, you know, and God caused the walls to come tumbling down like the song says, right? And, and they, so they, they routed Jericho and they took all the stuff and God gave them very explicit instructions to what, what they should do with all the stuff they took from Jericho. Some of it was to be devoted to the Lord, and then everything else was to be destroyed. Well, this brother Aiken got it in his mind. He would just keep some of that. I mean, why destroy all this stuff? This is good stuff. So he kept it for himself. So the same word used of, of that description in Joshua is used here because it's a violation of what God commanded them to do. Okay? So he broke faith. That's what it means. He broke faith. He kept back some for himself. His wife had full knowledge of it. Now, so understanding the similarities there, you can already see now something is wrong with this, with what they did. So verse 3 says, Peter asked or said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Now, now verse 4 is going to give us some clarity. Okay, So look at verse 4. Peter says, while it was unsold, wasn't it all yours? And when you sold it, couldn't you do anything you wanted to do with it? Well, sure. See, that's the, the sticking point here in this passage. A lot of times people see that, and, and here's what I've heard. Now, now this is not uh, all the time, but here's what I've heard. I've heard that uh, people will take this passage, this theme that runs through the first part of Acts, and they say, well, you see that? Jesus was a socialist. We're supposed to share everything. All the folks that have a lot are supposed to sell it and give it to those who don't have much. Well, here's only one problem with that. First of all, it's not true. And second of all, everything about what's going on here in the church is completely voluntary. Nobody told them, hey, sell your stuff, give it to them. That, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. They were, remember, remember the very first thing we learned about the church here in this passage? They were of one heart and one soul. They were a family. So they were simply caring for members of their family because that's what you do. And it was their own uh, volition. It was their own choice to do that. So Peter says to Ananias, when this property was yours, wasn't it completely yours? Your control? You could do anything you wanted to with it. So here we start to see the sin behind what Ananias and Sapphira have done. He lied by representing his gift to the body of Christ as the total price of what he sold. You see that? So it wasn't that he sold it and kept some for himself and gave some to the church. He did that, but then he said when he got to the church, he said, this is the whole thing. In other words, no, I didn't keep back any for myself. So the sin was not keeping back. It was lying about it. It was being dishonest. So we get a little insight into what he did and maybe why he did it. So uh, Howard Marshall says again about this text, he says, Peter's words make it clear 
that Ananias was entirely at liberty to keep or sell his property as he thought fit. His sin lay in his lie to the Holy Spirit and thus consisted not in giving merely part of the proceeds of the co- to the common fund, but in alleging that the money represented the whole and not just part of the price. F.F. F. Bruce said it this way. This, I really got a lot of help out of this. He said, The piece of land belonged to Ananias. He could keep it or sell it as he, as he pleased. And when he sold it, the money he got for it was his to use as, as he chose. But Ananias, in the effort to gain a reputation for greater generosity than he had actually earned, tried to deceive the believing community. But in trying to deceive the community, he was really trying to deceive the Holy Spirit. So Peter asked him, Why have you put this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men but to God. And as soon as Ananias heard what Peter said, he fell down and died. And great fear came over all who heard of it. So not just those in the church, everyone who heard of what happened. So you see, the the main point of what Ananias and Sapphira did here is not that they chose to keep some of the proceeds for themselves. That was perfectly fine. But what they did was misrepresent to try to say, oh, I'm actually much more generous than you think. And so he was trying to gain a reputation. It's almost like a 12-year-old boy who would shoplift something out of a shop at the beach to try to make an impression on people that he didn't even know. Kind of like that. He lied. He misrepresented. He was being deceptive. No one was telling him what to do with his property. But God did call him to be a man of integrity and be honest and have good character, especially in the family of God. So as Peter spoke, Ananias' sin came home to him. He fell down dead. And and mind you, nothing in Peter's personality stopped Ananias' heart from beating. It was the sudden realization of the sacrilegious act that he had just committed. So he fell down and died. You see it right there in the text. He heard the words, he fell down and died. Peter didn't pronounce the judge, oh, you're going to die for that. He didn't say that. But Ananias heard the words that Peter spoke and then he died. So what happens with his wife? Let's see the last little bit here of this passage and we'll be done. About three hours went by, verse 7 says. His wife came in not knowing what had happened. So here's the interesting thing about Sapphira. She had the opportunity to tell the truth. Peter gave her the opportunity to be honest after what had just happened to her husband and she not having knowledge of that. Because it says in the text here that Peter asked her in verse 8, tell me whether you sold the land for this price. And at that moment, she was at a crisis of faith. She had the opportunity to be truthful, and she didn't take it. So the text says she responded, yes, that was the price. And you see how the story ends. Peter said to her, Why have you agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? And then he says, See the guys back there at the door? They just carried your husband out a little while ago, and now they're coming to get you too. It's a 
same thing's about to happen. When Sapphira came in, he asked her plainly if she and her husband had sold the land for that sum. She had an opportunity to tell the truth, but when she represented uh, the, the, the lie that her husband and she had agreed on, Peter had no doubt she would share her husband's fate, and he told her so very bluntly. She would be carried out by the same young men who buried her husband. So it says here in the Bible that in verse 10, she immediately fell at his feet and breathed her last. And she was found dead by the young men who came in. They carried her out, buried her beside her husband. Now look at the way this text ends. It's the same thing you read at the, the end of verse 5. You see it again in verse 11. Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. So when I made that joke earlier about, uh, well, maybe we ought to pass off and play it again. That was just a joke. But do you understand what's going on here in the body? And here's what it boils down to. When you read Acts 4.32, and you read that first sentence that says, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And then you come down here and you see what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. It's not our place to judge were they really believers or not. I don't know. Can true believers still sin? Well, yeah. Sure they can. But I can tell you this. It would appear from the text that at that moment, Ananias and Sapphira were not of one heart and soul with their community of believers because they were trying to be deceptive in the midst of, I mean, can you imagine? Just put yourself in this position. Try to make some personalized application here. Do we have any reason, really, to, in this context, here in this body of Christ of which we are all a part, do we have a reason to try to put on some front or some facade or some try to make anyone else in here think we are something different than we are no, nothing ever good comes from being fake or trying to to have someone believe something about us that isn't true when I was 12 years old and I'm trying to impress these two kids that I met at the beach it was just, it was just stupid. It was foolish. It was a, let, let me let me say it this way. It was a sign, a demonstration of great immaturity and even insecurity on my part. When as a child I, I did that, I acted in that way. In the same way, when we behave in, in, in a similar fashion within the context of the body of Christ, it demonstrates spiritual immaturity or insecurity which has no place in God's church. Do you understand what, what this, the Scripture is telling us? There is always a foundation of wisdom that undergirds the commandments of God. There's always a purpose behind the principles by which God has given us to live. 
I didn't really think about it that much when I first started using this phrase, but sometimes when I pray, I've come to realize this profound truth contains in these words that sometimes when I pray, I'll end my prayer with this little phrase. I'll say, for your glory and our good. Yeah, it sounds nice, right? It sounds like that's, that's such a... Oh, that's such a beautiful way to end a prayer, you know. But, you know, even in that, guess what? What am, what am I really doing? Am I wondering what y'all think about what, what I say when I end the prayer? Whether or not y'all be impressed with it? Because if I am, I'm, I'm wrong. But think about those words. For your glory and our good. Where's the wisdom in the commandments of God? Where's the uh, purpose in the principles God has given us uh, to live by? I think it's really that simple. Because God has, has graciously given us His Word to live by. It's by His Word we hear and know the Gospel. It's by His Word we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's by His Word we're supplied sufficiently with everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's also only by His Word we can press on for His glory and our good. You know, it, it doesn't really matter if we fully understand the purposes behind what God tells us to do. Think about it in your own life. Did you understand every single thing your parents ever told you to do? I sure didn't. Because, you know what? I always ask that question. Do this. Why? And I could just now, I can so identify with <laughs> what was going on in my dad's heart and mind whenever he would tell me to do something and I would say, why? I mean, I'm surprised he didn't just smack me. <laughs> I'm just like, you know, because it doesn't matter why. My father told me to do it. End of story. Why is that any different with God? When God says plainly, clearly, do this, Here's one thing we can know with no exceptions. Every time God is right and every time it is for His glory and for our ultimate good and if I understand it or not, it doesn't matter. God said it. I do it. That's what's supposed to happen. It doesn't matter if I understand. It doesn't matter if He's given me the whole detailed plan of what's going to happen because I'm obedient or not. When God says to do it, we just do it. End of story. Because it's for His glory and it's for our good. And in the life of the church, honesty is always the best policy. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 